come on a journey with a cinephile. Welcome, everybody, to episode number 21 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide, David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. On this episode, I'm back into the Centennial Club episodes as I'm going to have featured reviews of, from 1920, Genuine, The Tragedy of the Vampire, as well as a movie that was made in 2019 but didn't get its release until 2020 as it was making its festival rounds of The Room. And then I also have mini reviews here of Open Grave, The Crow City of Angels, and The Bay. And I do want to apologize. In the mini reviews, I'll again tell you why it's a little bit lighter week on the mini reviews. And even though, you know, this quarantine, you thought I'd again have more movies, but I will kind of explain what I was doing and why it's a little bit lighter with only three mini reviews. But what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is send you over to a musical break to kick us off before I get into those mini reviews. Enjoy.
and for my first mini review of this week is going to be for Open Grave from 2013. This is directed by Gonzalo Lopez Gilago. It was written by Eddie Bori and Chris Bori. It stars Charlito Copley, Thomas Crushman, and Josie Ho. This is a horror mystery thriller from the United States and Hungary. This is currently sitting on a 6.2 on IMDb and a 2.8 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, a man wakes up in the wilderness in a pit full of dead bodies with no memory and must determine if the murderer is one of the strangers who rescued him or he himself is the killer. Now this is a movie I'm not entirely sure when I added it to my Netflix list for DVDs to get in the mail. This couldn't have been one of my college ads due to the year. Regardless, I randomly got this movie and decided to blindly give it a watch, having you know little idea of what it was about. And to go just a little bit deeper into kind of the recap of this movie is that we have Charlito Copley waking up in an open grave that is full of bodies. He finds a gun by him and throws up and then having no idea how he got where he did. Now a woman does throw a rope down to him so he can escape. She is an Asian woman who is also a mute and is credited as brown eyes and that is Josie Ho. This man also has an odd cut on his arm and heads to a nearby house. Now inside is where we have the rest of the survivors, which is Lucas, played by Thomas Crushman. There's Nathan, who is Joseph Morgan. Sharon, played by Aaron Richards. And Michael, played by Max Rotosley. Now, none of them have any memory about who they are or how they got there. The only way they piece together some of their names are by IDs, which allows them to figure out that Lucas, Nathan, Sharon, and Michael. They're not really sure of Jonah's name, that is Copley. They end up figuring that out much later. But what I do like about this movie is that they go about remembering things through memory. Like, I know that kind of sounds stupid as I'm saying it, but they go about where, like, Nathan realizes that he can read Latin and French from their books that are inside of this house, and Michael starts to believe that this could be his home, or at least the books belong to him. Michael realizes he's really good at firearms by kind of having them in his hand. He can do other things, and it just seems to be muscle memory. So people keep having memories like this, and then Jonah really starts to wonder if he is a good person or a bad person, because he keeps having images of him hitting somebody's head against a wall, as well as dragging a body towards the open grave. But there's actually much darker things going on around them, and they need to figure things out before it is too late. Now, as I was saying in the beginning, I wasn't really sure what I was getting into. I do like some of the things that this does, though, for sure. It gives me a vibe of something like identity or memento in the fact that we have characters that don't know how they're connected or how they got there to start. And I think it's an interesting way to fill in the backstory through their memories. It is also interesting that they'll do something and it'll trigger the memory, which is something that happens quite a bit. On top of that though, they might only get part of a memory, so it doesn't necessarily make sense and it makes them question their nature from what they have remembered as well. So I will say here, there's a reveal in this movie that I don't really want to spoil for you, but it is something that happens just over halfway through and it gets revealed to a type of movie that this actually is. And I will say, if you know me, I do like the movies of this as a subgenre, but it is one that they really do have to do something new for me to really enjoy it. And I thought this did something like that for sure. I was a bit annoyed that they weren't going to flesh out the story more. I think that they did well enough, but I will say I wasn't the biggest fan that we do kind of just get a kind of knowledge dump right there near the end. So that'll take me to the pacing of the movie, which I did have slight issues as I was saying. I was hooked in the beginning of this story where these characters don't know who they are. The idea of remembering things as they go was good, but I do think that we don't necessarily get enough. And then as I was saying, there's that massive depth of information near the end. 
I was glad that at least we got that, but there are still some questions that I had. This doesn't make me hate the movie, but I also cannot fully love it either. I do think the ending was pretty solid though to be honest. Now for the action of the movie, I thought it was also solid. Copley is good as this lead and he plays this role in a way that works. I like that immediately him and Crushman's character of Lucas are butting heads. They don't really trust each other, but Lucas thinks that Jonah is bad, where Jonah kind of agrees with him. He wants to get to the truth, and I like that the more we learn how different things go. Ho is really solid as the mute here, and I think this would be a tough role to play, and I thought she did fine there. Morgan Richards and Ratosley were all solid as well. They round this out for what was needed with the rest of the cast that we get here. And I should also say that Richards has some really beautiful eyes, something that really just pops as I was watching this. To take you over to the effects next, they're actually really good. I think they're done practically, and if they're not, we have some good CGI here that is really subtle. The look at these people who are infected by something is good. I like that we have the cloudy eyes and they just have a face that looks like their veins have something just coursing through that makes them darker. And I also think that the wounds on the people look good as well. I thought the cinematography was solid from what I could tell. And they do some interesting things with effects here that when we're seeing somebody's memory that they're not necessarily sure of, it is fuzzy. And I think that helps set the idea there for sure. So now with that said, this is an interesting film. I like that we're presented with a blank slate and as these characters are figuring things out about themselves, we're learning it too. That prevents knowledge from being just spoken to us and I can appreciate it. It doesn't work well with the pacing and I'll admit though, I did lose interest briefly in the middle and thought they could have done a little bit better instead of just jump dumping all the knowledge that we get near the end. The acting though was good as were the effects. The soundtrack didn't necessarily stand out, but it really did fit for what was needed. I found this to be an above average movie and would be interested in checking this out again to see what I might have missed and to see if some of my issues are resolved from knowing how everything plays out and just seeing if there's any clues that I might have missed this first time around as I was trying to piece everything together. But my rating for this movie is going to be a 7 out of 10. Okay, and for my second mini review here, I have The Crow, City of Angels. This was directed by Tim Pope. This comes from the comic book series and comic strip from James O. Barr, and this was actually written by David S. Goyer. It stars Vincent Perez, Mia Kirshner, and Richard Brooks. This is an action crime fantasy thriller from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 4.7 on IMDb and a 2.2 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis, is the spirit of the crow resurrects another man seeking revenge for the murder of his son. Now, this movie I'm pretty sure I saw close to when I watched the original one, and I believe that was right after college. I didn't remember this being all that great and wasn't thrilled to necessarily give it a rewatch, but it did come up as the next film and one of the last ones I have for the letter C in the list of movies that I'm trying to, you know, check out to expand my horror movie knowledge. I didn't remember much of this as I was saying, but I do know that there was some pretty solid names when I was watching the opening credits. Now, to kind of go a little bit more in depth from the synopsis that we got from IMDb, we start with like an off-color look at what happens to Ash Corvin, who is Vincent Perez, as well as his son, who is Danny, played by Eric Acosta. They're murdered by a group of criminals and then thrown off the pier. Now, Sarah, who is Mia Kirshner, was having a nightmare of what happened to Ash and his son. Now, she's a painter, and, and she's currently working on one of a man who has many faceless people behind him. He's crouching, holding the body of a woman. She's also a tattoo artist, which 
makes her come in contact with some of these criminals. And I should also point out here that Sarah is the little girl from the original movie, All Grown Up. Now, the criminals that killed Ash are Judah Earl is their boss, portrayed by Richard Brooks. He's having a meeting of his top members and ends up killing one of them as they're not producing what they should have. And it looks like they dumped a bunch or used a bunch of his drugs. Now, the guy tries to claim that it was a bad batch. And to prove this, they test it on that man, which ends up killing him. So they end up learning that he's right, just to show that Judah has kind of an evil streak to him and will do whatever it takes. Now, the men underneath him, as well as women, are we have Curve, who is portrayed by the eccentric Iggy Pop. We have Nemo, who is played by, surprisingly, Thomas Jane. We have Callie, who is Thuhua Thrang, Spider Monkey, who is Vincent Castellanos. As well as he has a blind woman who is Sybil, portrayed by Tracy Ellis, who is an oracle, and she tells him prophecies to try to keep him alive. Now, Sarah ends up going to the pier where Ash was thrown over, and he wakes up in the water because he's also dead too, which the synopsis didn't state, as he has been returned by the crow to extract revenge against this group of criminals. Now, the first thing is that I like that they're continuing the mythology of the crow. This film doesn't really introduce anything new, though. The only difference here is that Ash and his son were murdered instead of a man and his fiance. I like that there is establishing that it can extend the powers to others in similar situations. Now, I've never read any of the comments or anything like that, so this is really the movies, as well as I've seen the TV show, are my only knowledge of the Crow mythology. But I do think it's interesting that Sarah is the same character in the first film, so it is good to have that bridge for continuity. Going along with the powers of this character, at the end we do see our character briefly losing them. And sorry if you consider this a spoiler, but if you've ever really watched any like superhero comic book type films, you probably should know something like this is going to happen. Here though, we do see our villain becoming stronger, and I like that they play with this a little bit differently from the original film. And then having Sybil relay the net supernatural is something that we can get and how the movie plays out as it helps to give the villains a little bit of insight into the crow and its powers and i almost say this almost feels like greek or roman mythology here where you have an oracle like it almost feels like a 300 in almost a sense where you have these people in a more modern time are listening to somebody who is giving them knowledge that is not necessarily easily attainable in the natural world now Something that is a positive and a negative for me is where the movie takes place. With the name, I could tell that this was supposed to be Los Angeles. I did read that the place is a hybrid look of LA from the 1920s and 1940s. This gives it an odd feel that does work for me. The feel is like we're seeing a legend play out, which going back to what I was saying a minute ago, we have modern things like guns, but we also have supernatural forces bringing back a man who's been killed and seeking his revenge. The villains are listening to an oracle, and I get the vibe of, as I was saying, like Jason and the Argonauts in modern times. I also think that the feel of the city is not realistic. It feels like we're in the Wild West where there's no police in this movie at all. The villains are pretty much running the city, so it does give us like we're seeing a western town from the era where we have an unlikely hero showing up to clean up the city for the residents to finally live out their fears. So I've never actually seen them, but I almost feel like it's Clint Eastwood's character of the man with no name showing up into a town and, you know, being asked to help out with things. It does, as I was saying, take away some of the believability away for me, though, when you have a city like we get here. Going along these lines, it does have a lot of elements that I, that I would expect to really enjoy. I have laid other things previously, but regardless, I found this to be boring. I never really connected with Ash, and for whatever reason, it never held my attention. I think in part of this is that the Crow version of him was just too powerful, 
And the deaths, there's so much like cheesy one-liners and things to that effect that it just made me roll my eyes and he just picks off these people so easily. And by the time he becomes vulnerable, I'm already checked out and I also don't think that it does the best in building the characters up. The ending is fine, but just nothing really to get me excited either. And I actually had to look it up because I already had forgotten it. I watched this last night. I just, if you couldn't tell, found this to be boring overall. This is also quite shocking as we have some really good actors here. Seeing Iggy Pop is someone that really just plays himself from what I've gathered. And I like that what he does for the role of Curve though. And plus it's fun to see Thomas Jane as Nemo, who in this movie is a pervert, who goes to like the peep shows with the tokens and everything like that. And I will have to say there's a, the only time that I was fine with the cheesy lines is when Ash goes there to seek his revenge from Nemo. And I will say though, the latter is that with Jane, I just don't think he's given a lot to work with. And then, you know, Pop was just fine in what he did. Vincent Perez just doesn't pull me in like Brandon Lee did in the first movie. He plays the role fine, and the, the role of the character is tragic, and I just didn't feel it from him. So I think that's where he might be lacking a little bit. And seeing that Goyer was the one that wrote this, I'm pretty surprised about how cheesy some of the lines are, because, I mean, I know he does do that in some of uh, the films I've seen that he's written after this, but the ones here just didn't land for me. Kirshner is fine. I think she's pretty cute, but I feel she's underutilized. Brooks just doesn't feel out to be fleshed enough to be this evil villain he's supposed to be. We get it a bit, but it's just a forgettable performance for me. Castellanos and Trang are all fine, as well as Ellis, but no one just really stood out. That will take me to the effects of this movie. We get some practical ones, and we get some CGI. The practical effects were fine. I didn't really have any issues there. I mean, my probably my favorite one would have been what we see with the character of Nemo after he's encountered the crow. We also get some really good establishing shots to give us a feel of the city that they're living in. And it really just feels comic book-like. This also helps take away from the realism that just bothered me. As it only feels like there's like 50 people living in this world that were, you know, supposed to be in. I just think grounding it slightly would have helped for me. And there's some really bad CGI in this movie. Especially things that we get with the birds in the movie. That really goes back to the ending scene. That's the only thing that's really stuck with me from what I remembered. The last thing would be the soundtrack. It is hard for me to come down too hard as this is a 90s film with a soundtrack that feels like the era. It just didn't really add a lot for me. And I almost wonder if this would have where a good portion of the budget went to. Too many of the songs are playing in the background with the words and it's just distracting, to be honest, to follow the dialogue of the movie while that's going on. Now with that said, I don't mind what this movie's trying to do, it just fell short in my opinion. I like showing us that the crow can give its power to someone else who has been wronged and this film follows a similar formula to the first one. I don't mind the comic book feel mixed with the old west town, it just doesn't feel grounded and I think we needed that. I was bored for the most part, most of the acting performances are fine but they're underutilized or uninspired, the effects were hit or miss and the soundtrack fits for what they needed, it was just a bit too distracting for me. So I defined this to be below average and would avoid this unless you absolutely love the series and are out to check them all out. From what I do remember, this one is better than some of the later sequels it's been some time since I've seen those as well. But to end this off here, I'm going to give it a rating of a 4.5 out of 10. Okay, and for my next review, it is going to be for The Bay from 2012. This is directed by Barry Levinson. This comes from a story by him, as well as Michael Wallach, as well as he wrote the screenplay. This stars Will Rogers, Kristen Connolly, and Keither Donahue. This is a horror sci-fi thriller from the United States. 
This is currently sitting at a 5.6 on IMDb and a 2.8 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being chaos breaks out in a small Maryland town after an ecological disaster occurs. Now, this film I first heard about when I was working at Family Video. I would blindly take home the new horror releases to see if there were any independent ones that were hidden gems. Not to play my hand too early, but I really enjoyed it and it made me feel uncomfortable. I decided to give this a rewatch as my girlfriend Jamie watched a couple of found footage films with me and was intrigued. So with this whole quarantine pandemic thing going on, I felt this would have been a solid one to show her and possibly scare us both. Now the crux of this movie is that this is a government cover-up of what happened in the small town of Claridge, Maryland that is on the Chesapeake Bay. This footage is being held by the government but somebody secretly leaks it and we get an interview with Donna who is portrayed by Donahue as at the time she was an intern at the local news station and was covering their 4th of July crab festival. Now something happens during this and people are getting sick and no one knows why. Now we're getting filled in here with things that there's a super farm of chickens in the area where they are, you know, keeping copious amounts and just massive amounts of these animals and their feet has steroids in it and the farms are illegally dumping their excrement into the bay. And we get some footage of a man who is guerrilla style filmmaking to show what these farms are doing and the negative impact that is coming from it. We also have footage from two oceanographers who are studying the bay. Now there's Jacqueline who is portrayed by Nancy Aluka who is from the Cousteau Institute. And then with her also is Sam, who is Christopher Denham, who is from the University of Maryland. Now they're focusing that there's something wrong with the fish that they're finding. And they discover that this could be what is happening to things in town. The problem is made worse though, when they send their findings over to Mayor Stockman, who is Frank Deal, and he just completely ignores the data according to the movie. And then there's another couple of people that are Stephanie, who is Connolly, as well as her husband, Alex, who is portrayed by Will Rogers. They're bringing their baby with them to return to Stephanie's hometown for a fireworks display. Now they rent a boat to do so. Now things start getting crazy and her mother tries to warn them off, but because they're on the water, they don't receive that voicemail. And then there's also a Dr. Abrams, who is Stephen Kunkin, who is working in the hospital as these people who are getting sick start to come in and he relays the information to the CDC. They're looking to see if this is something that's bacterial, viral, or possibly fungal. But as they, you know, get more information, they realize what they're seeing is much more terrifying. And what makes this even scarier is that some of the stuff that we're getting in this movie is true. Now, as I've already said, this movie unnerved me the first time that I saw it. What is scary is the brutal realism of what they're seeing. There are things in this movie that I know to be true, but Jamie was informing me that she's currently reading a book called Food is the Solution, where they're actually talking about a lot of things that are happening in this movie, and I'm not going to lie, that unnerved me even more to figure that out. Now this idea came from Levinson, who was working with Wallach. He was troubled when he learned that the area's water of the Chesapeake Bay is 40% dead. Now I have some history with that is I grew up close to Lake Erie where that was considered a dead lake until probably like 10, 15 years ago where it is now able to, you know, sustain wildlife. So it's pretty terrifying that us as humans have done things like this. Now he elected to make this horror, a horror movie instead of a documentary to showcase that if we don't change our ways, this could be something that could realistically happen. I don't want to get too preachy here, as I don't like to tell others what to do. With this COVID-19 thing that is currently going on, I do think that we need to take a second look at our economy and how we treat the environment, to be honest. What makes this scary is that the creature in this movie is real. Isopods are things that I've read up on, and they're very similar to wood lice, or what 
where I grew up, we call like a roly-poly, or that lice you would find on people. Now, there are some that have adapted to live in the ocean, but that's not where this adaptation has stopped. What is terrifying is that they're parasites, and they can eat the tongue out of a fish and then take over its tongue until the fish dies, where everything that it eats, this isopod would actually end up eating. They can grow as large as two and a half feet, and this is a legit thing of nightmares, so coupling that with what we're doing to the environment can make this nightmare, you know, come true. That's not to say that this movie isn't flawed. I do have some slight issues with things. Now, this movie is set in 2009, and there's a girl who is using FaceTime with a friend. This, unfortunately, wasn't a feature until 2010, so this is a small issue that I had. I do like the idea of Levinson, though, getting a bunch of different ways of footage being filmed to give us a story. It is just a bit problematic, if I'm going to be honest, with, you know, some of the things I don't necessarily work as well. To shift this over to the pacing, I have to say that I think it's on point. We don't waste a, any time getting me to an unnerved feeling with the basis of what they're going to. It then slows down slightly to introduce us to our main players and see what the brief baseline of this town is. We then see the panic of not knowing what is happening and how quickly communication can break down. This is scary for what the United States and the world is going through at this time of writing this, and it really makes me see that this could happen. The implications of this movie are really just spot on in my opinion. As for the acting, it isn't great, and Jamie pointed that out pretty early on. We both agree though, I think this works in its favor. It makes us feel that we're more, you know, realistic here, and that these aren't actors. It is interesting that the two of them that I recognize from other things, as Connolly is in one of my favorite horror movies, The Cabin in the Woods, and Donahue was briefly in Pitch Perfect. The rest of the cast really do feel like the person they're supposed to be in this small town, and that adds a sense of realism for me. Next, I should cover the effects. Normally for a found footage one, I don't really want a lot of them. Now, I do think that some of the boils and things that you see on people does look kind of fake. And that was something that we both kind of pointed out while we were watching this. But I do notice that there was some CGI with the isopods themselves. They don't look amazing, but I'm willing to overlook that. They're small enough and we don't get the longest look at them. So I think that is fine for the movie. They did unnerve me, to be honest, and I think part of that is even then, even when we can't see them, we can hear them, which is sometimes worse for me. And I do like all the different forms of found footage that we got. They helped with the realism of the movie like this as well. So now with that said, this movie is one that I wasn't really sure how it was gonna hold up for me after the second viewing. And I have to say, I think I like this even more. Making this a found footage film, I think grounds it in reality and how many of the aspects in it are based in scientific findings really makes it that much more terrifying. I don't question why people are filming, especially when one group is a news crew, which is, you know, legitimately their job, and they want to make sure that everybody knows what is going on after this is all said and done. The other is that there are scientists and they're trying to keep track of their findings, so that also makes sense. The pacing of this is on point, and the acting feels amateur, adding more to the realism. I thought the effects were fine, and the sound design was great for the creatures. Overall, I'd say this is a good movie. It has some slight flaws, but the realism of the story is on point, so my rating here is going to be an 8 out of 10. And I do want to apologize, this is another shorter week. You'd think, you know, with this whole quarantine thing that I'd be watching more movies, but I did end up watching the rest of... The Outsider this week. I've read the book there, so I just want to kind of briefly go into that. I think much like the novel, it starts off really strong, and I was really on board for that. But the book also, I kind of waned interest the longer that it goes, and that's kind of how I felt with the series. I do like that they incorporated as much as they could from it into the movie. 
So my rating on that would have been an 8 out of 10. And then I also watched The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, but I watched that for Duncan McLeish over on the podcast Under the Stairs. He's doing a Where to Start With series. So I watched that, gave my review, and that'll be featured on that episode next month when it airs. So I just wanted to kind of fill you in on why this is a little bit shorter. But what I'm going to go ahead and do now is get you over to the trailer for my first featured review of this week. And for the first featured review of this episode is going to be Genuine, The Tragedy of a Vampire. 
This is from 1920. It is directed by Robert Venny. It is written by Carl Mayer. It stars Fern Andra, Hans Heinrich von Twosdowski, Ernest Grinnell. This is a horror film from Germany. It is currently rated a 6.0 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being... The one on the IMDb is not very good, but the one that I kind of crafted for this is a woman uses her charm to persuade men to do things they normally wouldn't for murderous results. Now, this is a film that I don't really recall hearing about before looking into horror films from this year. Now, as you know, this is another Centennial Club episode of me pairing, you know, films that are 100 years apart. So once I added this to that list and I actually obtained a DVD copy of it, I decided to give it a viewing. And just to give the synopsis that they actually have on IMDb is an extremely rare work from Robert Venny from the director and year of excellent The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. This work was eventually overshadowed by the success of Caligari. It has a dreamy atmosphere, like another world or something. But we start this movie in a man's room. He is looking at a book of sorts, and then an intertitle states that something about his favorite painting. Now he drifts off to sleep, and then we see in the background that there's a woman, and she's supposed to be a painting, but it starts to move. And then we learn that this person is named Genuine, and she is portrayed by Andra which I really like this scene as, I wouldn't necessarily call it effects, but I did think I saw the woman moving. I just kind of attributed it to the you know film not being of the greatest. But then when she actually moves out of the painting, I thought that was kind of a cool effect they were using there. Very basic, but still something that I thought was interesting. Now, the more we learn about her though, is she's a priestess of a religion and she's quite cruel. Her people are killed off and then she's taken as a slave as the information that we're given and seeing everything play out is from the past, or it's just a alternate type world. Now from here, we see that someone is looking at other slaves and ends up purchasing Genuine. She is taken to a place to live with Lord Mello, who is Grano. It is there that a barber comes to visit him every day, and this draws the interest of townspeople. Now inside of the house, the old man dozes off while he's being attended to, and then Genuine starts to visit with the man who is doing the haircut. She's not allowed to escape where she's being kept, so she's pretty much a hostage. Things then take a turn when Percy, who's portrayed by Harold Paulson, who is the grandson of Lord Mello, comes to visit, and Genuine uses her abilities to the fullest extent on him, and we see that he has that she can be quite cruel with what she does, and that definitely plays out here. But it doesn't just stop here with this guy, as another man is pulled in as well. Now I had to go a little bit shorter here with my recap, as this is still considered to be somewhat of a lost film. But the DVD copy I purchased is the 44-minute cut. There does seem to be another cut of one that is an hour and 28 minutes, which is considered the full cut. But I did see somewhere that there is a copy that is on DVD of that. But outside of that, you have to go to Germany to see it in a museum from my understanding. So I am quite intrigued knowing this information as I was doing you know, some research after the fact. And I do wonder if some of my issues would be resolved with this longer cut. Now I would say that my issue with this movie is that I don't really think this woman is a vampire. And I'm not even necessarily sure if they considered her that early on when this film was released. Now there is a scene where we get to see Percy after he's had an encounter with her, and he does look quite wild and pale like he could have had his blood drained from him. It is hard to tell with these silent films because they would accentuate the makeup and quite a bit, so that could also be why he looks the way that he does. 
but we don't get any indication though that the blood had been drained and it is possible that she could be more of an energy sucking vampire. The men that she has messed with do seem to be at their wits end at their encounter with her. And if anything, I would say that this she is more of a witch, which makes more sense as a priestess of a tribe of people that were, you know, considered wild and quite savage. And she has the ability to make these men do things that she says, or they lose their mind for not doing what she's commanding. Regardless of what genuine really is, I think this movie does a good job of creating a dreamlike atmosphere. I'm wondering if something else that is missing from this cut is kind of what we get with the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which this and that film as I've said earlier, have the same director, and I wouldn't be surprised if there is a bookend that is missing from the cut that I watched. This doesn't do as well in creating the dreamlike atmosphere with the sets, though. Both are considered German expressionism, but I just think that this other film is stronger in what they're doing, if I'm going to be perfectly honest. Now, we do get some interesting backdrops, and I know there's one that really stood out to me of a skeleton, but instead of a head on it, there's the face of a clock, which I kind of think is a cool play on that right there but the bookend that i'm referring to is that with caligari you get to see this opening scene where a man starts to tell you a story and then you get the conclusion to that here i don't understand why they gave us this initial scene of a man looking at a book with the painting of genuine in the background as it never kind of goes back to that now the story doesn't seem to be fully fleshed out and that's probably not getting you know as a lot of the information was cut and missing from this one now with that missing i found this to be boring it doesn't hook my attention to necessarily care what is going on, and I think by not giving me a bit more information for that hook, it does really hurt the overall product. And I do think that we have some interesting concepts here, though. There's a bit of misogynistic look at this woman who is confident in her sexuality and is using it as a weapon. The men are threatened by it, and then the ending, though, doesn't surprise me, even though I don't necessarily like it. That will bring me to the acting, which I thought was okay. I do think that Andra did a really good job here. She is taking on a strong, feminine character that I really like. She has a good look about her, and I think the costume choices also help there, especially playing up that she is considered, you know, a wild person before she is taken as a slave. Now, Twardowski and Paulson play similar roles, which I thought was good. They both lose themselves in genuine, and I thought that worked to show her strengths. Grinnell and the rest of the cast also rounded this out for what was needed, but no one really stood out to me, to be honest. I do think the lack of developing characters does really hurt here. And I've already touched on the effects slightly. We don't really get any in this movie, which doesn't surprise me with how early in cinema that we are. They could do some things, but this movie didn't necessarily require that. I do think we get some interesting backdrops to some scenes, but nothing as strong as we get from Caligari. There is a dreamlike feel to this, with especially the scenes of where Genuine is being kept. I did think that her look, as I said earlier, showed how wild she was, and I thought the cinematography was fine in my opinion. They do some interesting things with kind of wider shots, so I thought that you know works well to seeing different things as they play out. And then the last thing to cover would be the soundtrack. Once again, I'll say that if you don't know if these selections are the ones that the movies were intended to be paired with, but I liked what they were using here. They did get a bit repetitive as it felt like they only used like two or three total like selections and they just play them over and over again. But I do have to re reiterate that the ones that they did choose worked. The selections were unnerving and it really made me feel uncomfortable. This also seemed to help play in the atmosphere of the movie. And now with that said, this isn't my favorite from the year or from Venny himself. I do think there are some interesting aspects to this, and I like how strong of a character that Andra is with her portrayal of Genuine. This does have a misogynistic take though on her as a woman, 
which I can't fault the movie too much due to how long ago this came out. I mean, literally being over 100 years old now. I do think that due to being a lost film, there's some story elements missing from the cut that I watched, which causes to be slightly boring for me. The visuals are fine, and I think that the soundtrack that was accompanying it on the DVD was good. I will still say this is an above average movie, which isn't the worst I've seen, or there are some you know good elements, it's just lacking a bit. And after doing some of that research that I was referring to previously, I do really wanna see if there is another DVD that I can purchase with this hour and 28 minute cut just to see how my thoughts on it will change or anything like that. If I haven't already given it, my rating here is a six out of 10, and I'm not really gonna have a spoiler section as the movie just doesn't go deep enough for things that I've been saying, and there's not a whole lot of trivia that I could look up about this movie either. So what I'm gonna go ahead and do now though is send you over for the second featured review of this episode. Actually, just kidding. I decided to, after I had recorded and edited that previous sound clips there i went onto youtube and actually saw that you could watch the full version of this movie so that's what i went and did there and so i just wanted to throw in a few ideas here and just what i took from the additional footage that was missing first thing is that this movie starts off with percy who is actually that man in the beginning of the movie who was a painter and it seems like ever since he had painted the image of genuine he has not been able to kind of go about his normal life and he's been very stressed out so his two friends are coming over and lord Mello shows up and wants to purchase the painting but he rebuffs him and sends him on his way the two guys tell him before he leaves that they'll get him to change his mind so what we saw earlier with him reading through the book is he falls asleep and has a dream about the legend of genuine now it appears that Lord Mello, when he purchases her as a slave, is doing this and he keeps her in that basement of his house in order to shield her from the world as he feels that it is ugly and dirty, which is fitting because of part of the crux of all the situation that happens here is that his barber who is Guyard, portrayed by John Gatawat, is that he gets taken to the magistrate because the townspeople don't know what's going on inside of Lord Mello's house, but the magistrate won't do anything towards Lord Mello himself because he's such a good benefactor that he gives large sums of money to help the poor of that city. And it looks like that Florian is actually Guyard's nephew who is coming to be his apprentice, and he ends up doing something and meets Genuine, which makes him go down that path, as well as Percy in this dream is Percy Mello, who is the, I believe, grandson of Lord Mello. So there's all these moving parts here that were missing in the original cut that I saw, but I will say that I still found it to be a little bit boring in the latter half of the movie, but a lot of my issues with the character development and the story itself have been cleared up with that longer version. So I'm definitely glad that I went back and found that and then end up watching it. So I just definitely wanted to make sure that I updated this review before posting it. So now with that said, I am truly now going to get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. Sweet home. I'm guessing you're not from these parts. We just moved down from New York. <laughs> no peeking. Let's give it another try. There's no reason we can't have children. We already tried twice. Both babies died. Holy Mary, Mother of God. Nobody told you? The previous owners. They got killed in this house. House of blood. God, I need another bottle. 
Honey, the real Van Gogh. Yeah, sure. Where did you get all this stuff? The room makes things. Why do you need most in the world? I want a million dollars. How does that work? Who cares how it works? You just use it. The only thing more dangerous than a person who can't get what they want is a person who gets whatever they want. Get out of the house before it's too late. Where's the necklace you asked for? I can always get another. And another. And another. What the fuck is wrong with you? I took a shortcut. You used the room to make a baby. A baby is not a thing. Yes, it is. One, two, three. You never take that stuff outdoors. I'm not doing this. Feel free to leave anytime you want. I want to be with you forever. You're afraid of him? Of course I am. You're not a real person. Man wants to be free. But first, the creator must die. You said we'd be together forever. Mr. Rube, come with me. It's me. Okay, and for the second featured review of this episode, I have The Room from 2019. This was directed by Christian Volkman, who also had the original idea as well as co-wrote the screenplay. Now, there's a lot of people that had a participation in this. So just kind of going down this list here, uh, Sabrina B. Caring also helped with the collaboration of this screenplay. Now, the adaptation is being credited to Eric Forestier also worked on the dialogue and co-wrote the screenplay. Now there was a Gaia Gustati and a Vincent Ravalek who participated in the creation of the screenplay as well. And this is starring Olga Karyalenko, Kevin Janison, and Joshua Wilson. This is a drama mystery sci-fi film from France, Luxembourg, and Belgium. It is currently sitting on a 6.0 on IMDb and a 2.7 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being, Matt and Kate buy an isolated house while moving. They discover a strange room that grants them an unlimited number of material wishes, but since Kate has had two miscarriages, what they miss the most is a child. Now, this was a movie that I was turned on to when one of my online friends, so shout out to Mark Nato Lehu, who posted a list of horror films that were coming out in the month of March on BOD as well as just anywhere in general. With the quarantine going on and not being able to go to the theater to see new movies, I decided to take advantage of seeing this as it was new on Shudder just recently. Now, as the synopsis stated, we get this couple as they arrive at their new house. The couple are actually Matt, who is Janison, and then Kate is Karyalenko. They're both originally from Europe, but have relocated to the United States. Matt is a painter, while Kate is a translator. They're taking this house in the middle of nowhere in upstate New York, hoping that Matt can be inspired and it looks like Kate is giving up her career. While they're moving items in the new house, they discover a weird door. Matt had tossed out of a window an odd piece of metal that turns out to be a key to this door. Now while inside, he discovers that whatever he wishes for appears. He asks Kate to make a wish and her first thing to come to mind would be money. This spooks her at first, but then the two of them go on this binge where they're just partying hard as they're getting this exotic food, different clothing, uh, Matt is having some of the most legendary paintings being, you know, put in that room. I don't know if I said it, but money. So they're just kind of just going hog wild in what they're doing here. And to the point now where they have more money than they'll ever know what to do with. The wishes causes power surges, 
where the lights will flicker while it's doing this, so this causes them to call out an electrician. When he sees the setup in the basement, he's shocked, and I'm not gonna lie, I was as well. He states that what is down there is older than his grandmother, and he'll need to figure out what the cost would be to replace it. And he also lets on to Matt that there were murders that has happened into the house last time somebody had lived there, which has been for some time. This causes Matt to look into these murders and leads him to somebody named John Doe, who in this movie is portrayed by John Flanders. This unknown teen killed Mrs. Schaefer, who is Carolyn Weyers, and Mr. Schaefer, who is Michael Kaya. And this, as I said, was probably like 30, 40 years ago since anybody has lived there. So I think it's the 70s, so it's pretty close to almost 50. Matt then goes to visit John in the mental institution that he's been kept in since the murders happened. John knows exactly why Matt is there and is cryptic in his responses. Matt does learn that everything that comes out of the room ages to dust when it's outside of the house's walls. So we get to see this as he's going to pay for some gas on his way back home, but all he has is dust in his pocket and then goes home to test some of the things that he has to figure out if that is truly what happened. Now with their newfound fortune, Matt wants to try to have a baby as the synopsis states, it hasn't gone well and this idea of getting pregnant again freaks Kate out. She comes up with a different idea of what to do about having a child and things don't necessarily go as planned as Matt hasn't shared the rules that he's figured out just yet with her and it goes even darker as well as things progress. Now I will say, if you couldn't already tell, I came to this movie pretty blind. I just knew that it was getting its release here in 2020 as it does, as it was doing a festival rounds before that and it was on Shudder. And I know personally, I'm also a big fan of Karyalenko. I also figured out there was something with a room from the title. I mean, pretty obvious if you couldn't tell. What I'm getting at though is I didn't read any synopsis or anything before checking this out. Now what I want to lead off here is I like the concept. It isn't anything that we haven't seen before, but it does take a different twist on it, which is always good. I like the idea that there's this house with an odd wiring that was never really learned about, just that it is in all of the walls and it's pretty much almost like it's insulation there. It powers up and can make whatever material item you want come true, which does include people. I know this is a slight spoiler, but I'll just leave it there. This really does work with the uh, be careful what you wish for mantra, which I do find to be intriguing when it is done correctly. There's also the interesting idea here though, that nothing can be taken out of the house, but John Doe does know a bit more about this and really needs for Matt to get to that point where he's ready to learn more about it as well. And this movie also does explore some interesting things here in regards to the soul and humanity. Kate's mother is referenced as she calls the couple once they get to the house. Matt hints that she's quite religious, but neither of them really seems to be. What makes this intriguing to me though is that when Shane comes along, we get to see what could happen if you're not raised from birth. Things that you're taught over time are missing and he's forced to stay in the house as well. Now, it was interesting how I was trying to find a movie to pair up with Genuine, and without even realizing it, and just by happenstance, both of these movies have people that are being kept inside of a room or a house against their will. So it's kind of cool how that played out for me here. And getting back to what I was saying here, things here play out quite interesting, especially when you have a room that can give you whatever you want, and why would you ever want to leave the house if that's the case? And it really makes you take a look at your own humanity for that fact as well. Now, I really haven't thought of what this movie was trying to say with this power source until I started actually doing my written review. I was wondering if it was going to shut down and prevent them from making any more wishes. That doesn't really seem to be what is happening. So I'm wondering if in part it is powered by people being in the house. A 
thing like this, where the more you use it, it is feeding off you being there as you lose your humanity to the materialistic side. So the house is laid dormant for some time, so it would seem that it doesn't want to drive the residents away, but find a way to keep them there, which what better way to do that than to be giving them everything you've ever really wanted. Now I want to shift this over to the pacing of the movie. For the most part, I thought that it was good. I was hooked to see where things were going to take me, and I would say that I did get a slightly bit bored during the montage of them taking advantage of the room, but then once we get to the main idea of the movie, I was hooked to see where things were going to go and how it was going to play out. I thought many of things played to be interesting, even more as they learn about John Doe and the family he killed to how it parallels what is happening to this current family in the house. There's also an interesting dynamic between Matt and Kate as well. And as I was just talking about this, something flashed into my mind where this does almost have a feel of the Amityville horror in that we have this family moving into a house. Things don't really seem to be going as they really thought they were going to. And then we, they, somebody learns that there are murders, so they end up doing you know, some research about that. That's really about where that kind of ex like ends, but I just thought I would bring that up here as there is some kind of a parallel to that. Now, since I've already kind of referred to the characters a bit, I'll shift over to the acting. As I've already said, I'm a fan of Kirilenko. I think she's a solid actress and I find her to be quite attractive. Her character here is interesting. She's had two miscarriages, and it has affected her deeply. Matt thinks that now having this room, they should try again as it can give them everything they've ever needed. So he believes that without having some stresses that it might be able to help her. Plus that she is kind of giving up her work so she doesn't need to worry about it there. She's terrified though, and doesn't want to try again. There's partly a health concern here, but there's also the grief that has scarred her pretty deep. He doesn't seem to get it. And to be honest, he's not the greatest husband. I do think that Janice's plays his role very well. It is interesting look at being a stepfather in this movie. Now I have a really good friend who doesn't think he can date someone with children as he can't see in himself raising someone else's child where I have another friend who doesn't mind it at all. Matt struggles with things here and it is almost like he has trouble growing up and being an adult himself. That would actually fit the idea here that he's a painter, so he doesn't have a real profession in the grand scheme of the world. So I do think he does a solid performance here, and especially he has to do something later in the movie that I didn't catch on to at first, but then as I correlated to what they were getting at, and then it obviously completely informs you of it, I thought that he does a solid job with that in mimicking another character. Flanders also is a solid job here as John Doe. He's kind of the cryptic person who gives you answers as you progress here. But he's also quite scary is that he's in here for murder, but things aren't necessarily as they seem. And I actually kind of feel bad for his character with what he's had to endure his whole life. But then it becomes kind of a morality dilemma here with the things that he's been accused of. Now, moving me to the effects, I don't really remember a lot of them, if I'm going to be honest. It is interesting, though, being a sci-fi film that we don't have more, but to be honest, it really doesn't need them. I think this does well in portraying this movie's, in this room's power with the flickering lights. All of the wires are, are throughout are pretty creepy, as that is, you know, the power supply. It almost makes you feel a lot like await further instructions with how those wires are so tightly knit together. It does feel a lot like that. Now, the descendant into madness and complacency seems natural for sure. And this almost seems like, I've never actually watched the show, but it seems like a longer episode of Black Mirror or kind of like a Twilight Zone type thing where you have that sci-fi elements and it's almost a cautionary tale. 
I don't think that is a slight to this movie at all, where I know some of those ones that feel kind of like those usually kind of run on a little too long. I don't think that's the case with here. And I do think as well that the cinematography helps to what they're conveying. Now, with that said, I found this to be a pretty enjoyable movie. I like the idea of this house in the middle of nowhere, having this dark past and harboring the secret. It really allows you to have your heart's desire, but things don't always work as you plan. The acting really brings these characters to life. I do think that it has some parts where I waned in interest, but not enough to ruin this movie. There's not a lot in the way of effects. It doesn't really need them, and I thought the soundtrack was fitting for what was needed. I'd rate this as a good movie. Could possibly be a contender for the year end, depending on how other movies play out when I've actually seen them. But this is definitely up there as one of the better ones that I've seen thus far. So my rating here is going to be an 8 out of 10. Now I'm just going to have a little brief spoiler section here to kind of delve a little bit more into one of the things I've been alluding to. I will have it time-coded in the show notes so if you want to skip over this little section you can do that but like i said this is not going to be very long at all so that will start now kate's idea is to wish for a child to be appear in the room so now we have three babies that are portraying as shane where we have livio suscott heather bailey gade and isaac kaminsky now this really bothers matt and he wants her to go back into the room to wish it away as this becomes a question of, would this thing have a soul because it's not born in the natural way and it's just kind of created and appears there? Now, I would have trouble wishing this child away even though it is kind of like a clone if you think about it. But who's to say a soul actually exists and does it have to be born in a natural way for that to be you know, possible? Or is it something where you're just a person's a person and we just have a conscious and that's really about the extent of it? I don't know. This is not a dilemma I really want to delve too much into because you really have to start throwing in your own personal beliefs where I am an atheist so I don't really believe in stuff like that but I digress now Kate wants to take Shane outside to just take him on a walk and that's when Matt kind of alludes to her that she can't do that she does it anyway and then she has to rush back in as it looks like her child has burns on him but it turns out these things aren't actually burning up when they get out there they're aging so then when they come back in shane is now a child who is wilson now kate is trying to teach this kid different things and is tutoring him and whatnot but the kid starts to get a little bit mouthy and with the father and him not really getting along as this child is not from you know he has none of his dna or anything like that and technically doesn't even have kate's dna so then they start to butt heads and the two of them don't get along but then it gets interesting is that Matt finally gets fed up and tells the boy that if he goes outside like he really wants to, he's not going to be able to survive and will die. Now, this becomes interesting is that he watches his parents have sex and then decides to go outside where he becomes a teenager when he's back in the house as Francis Chapman. Now, this is where the real horror begins, I would say, because he really wants to kill Matt because he loves Kate but it's more of just an infatuation that he only knows two people in his world and that he's really trying to carry on with the things that he sees. And I mean, by growing up to be a teenager with only being alive for a few months, he doesn't have all the nuances that we learn just through punishment and rewards and just natural things like that. So it becomes quite creepy. And then this is where he actually goes into the room and wishes to be look like his father 
because he's going to come onto his mother. But I like how they have these little things here where Janison's will like chew ice, which is something that Shane did as a child, and just things like that. I think it's a really good acting performance from him to be able to portray as him being somebody else. And I didn't catch on at first, but then as it's revealed, it all clicked home for me. So that's really all I wanted to delve into here. It becomes an interesting back and forth between the morality of what they're doing and if you have this type of power, be careful what you do with it because it can have disastrous results. So what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is get you over to one last musical break before I close out the show.
I want to thank everybody for listening to Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast, episode 21. If you want to get in touch with me, you can via email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. Reviews of the Dead are where I post all of the reviews on this episode as well as any of the other ones on previous episodes. And that link is horrorreview.webnode.com. On Facebook, you can find me at David Mishkin Garrett Jr. Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, it's David OSU. Instagram, it's David OSU87. And if you want to download the FlickChat app, I know it's pretty much dead and it's partially my fault for not trying to push it harder. If you do end up wanting to try to go that route where you can get in touch with me much easier, that join code is journey with a cinephile. And if you want to try to hit me up on there, I will definitely try to get back to you as soon as possible on that. So now for the next episode, I believe that I'm going to do another Centennial Club. I have three movies still on my list, but looking at one of them, it does look like that might be another lost film. I'm going to try to see if there's any way to find a source for that one, but... If not, it's going to be between two other ones, and I need to find a 2020 release. Shouldn't be too hard with everything that is getting dropped on VOD, and I do believe there's another one on Netflix. I believe that's the platform. I'm going to see if that's because that might be one of the ones that I do on that. Not completely positive as of yet, but I will figure everything out today and get everything going for next episode. I want to thank you again for listening. And I hope, you know, you stay safe in everything that is going on with this quarantine and pandemic. And outside of that, this is David Garrett Jr. signing off.